Hey everyone, welcome back to Roll for Enterprise. This week, Zach and I are joined once again by friend of the podcast, Lilac Schoenbeck from Rocket Software. Hey Lilac, welcome back. Thank you for having me back after all the things I've done in the past. <laughs> welcome back, Lilac. <laughs> yeah, welcome. And uh, so it was fun to have Lilac on because there was a nice coincidence where we said, hey, we've been talking about robotic process automation a bit. Uh, we should ping Lilac because that's kind of in her bailiwick. And it happened to strike on the very same day that Rocket announced an acquisition in that space. So, Lilac, first of all, why don't you talk through your new acquisition, which sounds fun, and then we'll branch out into RPA more generally. Sure. Yeah, so we acquired, uh, I guess it was on the 20th now, just over a week ago, um, Rocket acquired uh, two products um, from ActiveOps. One of them uh, is WebConnect, which is a terminal emulation solution for mainframes, and the other is ConnectIQ, which is robotic process automation for mainframes. Um, and it's that latter one I think is probably uh, more for this conversation. Um, a really cool technology that allows, uh, we have a lot of customers in the mainframe, uh, I'm sorry, in the healthcare payer space, um, and this technology allows them to automate their claims processing. Um, and we're talking like incredibly high percentages, 75 to 90% automation of these claims processes by hitting the mainframe screens and basically robotically accessing them and doing the inputs and the changes that need to happen in order to process these claims. Um, as you know, claims processing is actually a weirdly dynamic space. Things change a great deal in the U.S.-based healthcare payer market all the time. And one thing that happened, for example, this year is that we had COVID. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, and that changed vaguely, a number of the vaguely. ways. Vaguely. Vaguely. it maybe hit the news cycle. Um, but like that's the sort of event that causes an influx of claims in a new and interesting direction that need to be processed as quickly as possible, but also accurately and efficiently according to a whole new set of rules, right? Um, and so these large healthcare payers are able to write um, these little robots um, that go and execute millions and millions of transactions every month for them. Um, so it's incredibly cool. I love talking to the customers that I've had the chance to engage with, and we are so excited to have it as part of our portfolio. Yeah, because that's always one of the striking things to me about uh, mainframe's role in modern business, that you see people interacting with snazzy web front end, or you yourself interact as a customer of these organizations with a mobile app on your phone. And then several layers further down, deeper into the onion, there's a mainframe just humming away. And as far as the mainframe is concerned, it's all, you know, uh, 80 column, 50 line or whatever the, <laughs> the terminal is set up. And there's some just translation software that at this point is super complicated to, to explain those two worlds to each other, or rather to hide the complexities of those two worlds from each other. That's... Yes, it's all smoke and mirrors. There's a mainframe behind the curtain. <laughs> So like, I mean, at IBM, I mean, the folks with the mainframes, I guess we've been doing screen scraping and what could be considered RPA for like a long time, right? But I guess this brings it to the forefront, right? Because I've always seen it used in uh, kind of the op space or behind the scenes, but never from like a front end user perspective. Um, I mean, but, you know, from an RPA perspective, I always ask myself, like, how... Like, how much does it really help? How much is it is it sustainable? Because you did say it changes a lot. So doesn't that mean it's always like there's there's like an army fixing things and always working at, at like adjusting RPAs or, or not not so much? I mean, how, how do you see that part of it? Yeah, not so much. What we've heard from customers is that there's usually a skilled RPA person on staff, right? Because somebody has to understand how to how to sort of 
make the robots do our bidding. Otherwise, they robots take over. And I think you've seen that sci-fi movie. Um, yep, yep. But so you don't want that. Um, the the truth is is that the tweaks are um, are very very manageable, and people who get good at writing these and tweaking these do it well. But one of the innovations that have happened, I think, when we think of screen scraping, at least for me, when I thought of it, I thought of it in like 1999, um, where if you move the the text box over four pixels, the whole thing just blew up, right? Um, <laughs> It's not like that anymore. You can actually tag the names and the input fields in a way that even if they shift and change on the screen, the robot is able to roll with it. Um, you can set all of the exceptions and all the error handling and everything. And so the idea is to make it as independent as possible, even through, even to withstand a certain amount of change in the system. Um, but it's interesting because when we look at how this interacts with other elements of uh, legacy IT environment, like management and whatever, right? You think through and you could see how this is naturally has an interaction with APIs because if something does become sort of more complex than what a mechanical repetitive task would do, you move into building APIs into that environment that can be a little bit more flexible. Um, and, then, and then the other thing that is interesting is that actually impacts the DevOps process, right? Because if you're building new um, capabilities that leverage those APIs or leverage those robots, what you actually want is for the release processes and the testing processes and everything to link back and have an understanding of what that end destination is doing and feels like. Right. That's the bit that I find interesting about RPA is that crossover between the human interface and the machine interface, making things addressable by other machines, by programs that were not perhaps originally intended to be. And what that then enables when you can connect up all of these different pieces. And there is a domain of guy of like assisted IPA, uh, RPA, which is where, you know, a call center rep does something, 47 things happen, and then somebody has to do something again, right? It isn't fully independent. Our domain that, that we have is unassisted RPA. So it's the one that just sort of runs wildly um, and does magical things for you while you're sleeping or not. I, I, would, Im I would imagine though, there's still going to be exceptions and someone needs to catch and, or, or it never, I mean, it doesn't happen. I, I I would imagine there's, it's like you say assisted, but I guess what's the difference between assisted and non-assisted? Maybe that's the better question. Uh, the question is if you've got a human actually interacting with the process that's happening and needs to provide input at some point or not. Um, and those often err a little bit more towards some of the more broad-based RPA vendors that we work with and partner with. Um, that and, and they're doing RPA against often like desktop or x86 distributed apps as well, right? It doesn't, not all RPA, and certainly yep. in the bulk of RPA, doesn't happen on the mainframe. Right, yeah, it's a, it can be anything. And looks at in certain ways, I mean, web automation is kind of the same idea. When you're doing automation, you bypass all the fancy graphical stuff, and you're relying on field tagging and all of that stuff to programmatically interact with something that wasn't really designed to be interacted that way. That's right. It always reminds me, like, it's one of those experiences I've had since I joined Rocket um, earlier this year was people keep referring to, you know, those fancy newfangled point and click interfaces. <laughs> <laughs> you know how those are. <laughs> those kids today, they want everything. A mouse. <laughs> no, they're just touching. Touch, touch. Come on. Touch, pinch, zoom. That's that's, that's the world. Right. That's yeah. right. I'm waiting for them to build that into terminal emulation, the pinch yeah. function. Yeah, which is why we'll never understand Snapchat, but that's okay. We're not going to try. Can we just admit that? We're not trying. <laughs> that's true. If we wait long enough, it won't be relevant anymore, and we can just ignore it and move on to the next thing, TikTok or something. That yeah, is my yeah. plan. Not TikTok, the next thing after that. Yeah, probably safest. So uh, 
pulling back a little, and so robotic process automation, it's yet another example of automation writ large. And one of the recurring conversations that we've been having is about how this affects job markets. And, you know, automating someone's job, maybe they have a not particularly rewarding job doing these repetitive tasks at the at the mainframe green screen console, as was. Uh, but how much of that job do we think goes away? How much of this, in other words, is additive that people are getting more done and therefore we need the same number or more people? Uh, and how much of it is we can get away with having fewer people and what do we do with a s- spare people in inverted commas? You know, if I if I go back to the discussion we had last week, and we spoke a bit about like companies who are uh, moving uh, jobs to uh, lower cost areas of the world, let's say labor arbitrage. You know, when when you start to look at RPA and all, you know, all these other automation technologies, I think this is why like labor arbitrage. If you're looking at that, you've kind of given up on on the other side of it, and and that's yeah, you can also that's arbitrate rest- labor between humans and robots. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that's where the focus needs to be. So that's where, I mean, to like what's going to happen to the current jobs, I, I think they'll become more technical, right? And I think the, like like I've said in the past, the the people doing the work will become a bit more tech savvy, let's say, or, or people coming into it. Um, They'll understand the, Snapchat and everything. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and then I, I think labor arbitrage. You know, if if you're um, if you're looking at labor arbitrage, I think you've you've missed the boat to to some extent. Uh, I don't know how everybody else feels about that, but that, that's the way I see it. At There's least sort of different things, right? There's things you can delegate to a robot, and things that you actually need a sentient being for. Um, I would like to think that a customer service agent that has access to um, the power of something like RPA on the back end can actually focus their attention less on keystrokes and more on the relationship that they're trying to manage and support. And the, but I, I'm not under any illusion that that doesn't imply that you're going to have fewer customer service agents if you're doing this right. You're going to have better customer service agents, right? You will. You absolutely will, right? And on the claims processing side, unfortunately, a lot of this actually, I think, ends up the impact that that I see, and maybe I'm just I, I don't know this well enough, so I'm sort of riffing here. So I just want to be clear. But but claims processing, there's a lot of um, f- money floating in this system, and somebody is making money on the float in this whole scheme, right? So when you wait six, eight, twelve weeks for your payment, or your doctor waits that period of time for a payment, somebody is sitting on some money somewhere in the system, right? And I think changing the pace in which these sort of things happen is going to actually change the financials of the of the entire. Um, industry, but I'm not sure how that impacts the end user, and I'm not sure how that impacts the customer. But generally speaking, I love things that mess with the financials of float because that always feels kind of like an unfair part of the whole entire economic game. So, are are you saying it helps with the analytics? I mean, I'm 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 a little confused because now we're talking RPA, and you're saying all this money that's floating. So, what kind of insight does it provide you? I mean, we're really just talking automation, right? It's automation, but if you imagine that a healthcare claim got processed and paid or addressed like 100 times faster. Right now we sit and wait when those claims are submitted and then ultimately are are paid out to the doctors, to ourselves as reimbursement as we like that whole process is weeks and weeks long, right? I go to the doctor and 8 weeks later I have to deal with the paperwork. If that were compressed, where's where's the money in the system? Who's getting paid sooner, right? Whose whose bank account is being emptied sooner and so forth? That changes the dynamics in my mind. Um so it's not as much about analytics as 
how does this shift the dynamics of an industry that probably somebody is skimming some float off the top here somewhere, right? There have to be. It almost seems like there's two different approaches to this. I I think the approach that Rocket Software is taking, acquiring an RPA company, trying to fill some of those gaps. But organizations, are they also looking maybe to replace some of that uh, you know, hate to say it, but I'm just going to ask the the Rocket software. Is there a replacement out there for Rocket? Or are you trying to go ahead and, and move with the business to go ahead and compete with some of these startups that are trying to disrupt your business? We at Rocket are primarily focused on legacy systems. Um, and there's not a lot of startups in the legacy space. <laughs> I don't know why. It's strange. Well, uh, <laughs> may, may not be in the legacy. No, no, no. I, what I mean is, I mean, so you, for what you're trying to do, the core principle of the problem you're trying to solve for your customers, they have to be looking outside that box. And, and, you know, I, I want to sit here and say everything's great and they're going to deploy RPA with Rocket Software, but I'm just I'm trying to challenge you to cha- to tell me, just ex- explain to me if I'm a customer, why I wouldn't want to go find an alternative, um, whether it's, you know, a, a different solution. And maybe uh, I'm missing the point on what Rocket Software does, but I have to imagine that you're competing with new technology on a daily basis as well. Right. And that's why you're evolving. Yeah, so the the big competition, the thing that was always looming large over any of these systems and applications is more about replatforming, right? Pull out the mainframe. Somewhere Mike is like, forget it. I'm just pulling out all of the IBM eyes. I'm pulling out all the mainframes. I'm done. Um, Or maybe not. Yeah, well, it's not IBM anymore, so that that's another discussion. That's a whole other podcast. And and so that is the sort of looming threat. Um, I would tell you that that threat has been looming like an anvil over Wiley Coyote's head for decades. Um, it hasn't fallen. When we look at the numbers, and we actually just released an IDC study that that showed this, and I've seen some other research recently, the the threat, you know, rumors of their death are largely exaggerated, partly because the replatforming is so incredibly expensive. So our primary challenge, though, is to talk to customers about um, if you've got to sort of invest in this, like, older technology in order to make it help, continue to work for you, right? And so that is our narrative. And so far, it's been very useful. And a lot of organizations are seeing, particularly after a year of horrifying pandemic, that some of these old old dogs are really still hunting. Um, and so, but you do have to sort of give them a bath and continue to feed them. And so, and so that's the narrative that we're trying to tell in the market. Our primary competition sort of in that larger scale, Zach, is, is definitely this idea that replatforming is the right answer. Um, a, a digging into that, though, I think, Mike, I don't know, I would ask you, right? It, it never is quite as straightforward as just unplugging a, a box. No, because you're looking at, um, you know, it, it's really transformation, right? Rather than replatforming, I, I look at it. So it's like, you're going to look at processes. You're going to look at, I mean, if you're going to replatform, you're going to, you know, basically blow it up and rebuild. So, and, and that's completely a, a different discussion, but yeah. Yeah, the return on rewriting the exact same thing, just in cool programming language du jour, uh, is very limited. The the return is if there's a bigger change, and as part of that, you also re-implement everything to match the the new status quo. Yeah, yeah, and it also depends. I mean, at what point some of these old legacy systems are in your environment. I mean, do you see it as eventually kind of trickling away and dying, or do you see it as hey, this is this is part of our key business, and the the, the steps you take after that are very different. Uh, based on that. And I, I think some companies um, may find themselves a bit stuck because it's part of key process. Yeah, but I don't think that's bad, right? That's not necessarily bad. That's what that's the, that's what we're sort of saying is that there's ways to, to bring modernity to these older systems if you choose to invest in that way and that you can get more out of them. Um, 
and you can teach them new tricks. If again, Mike, like if you if you have this desire to to fully transform the environment and the the money and the time and the risk appetite, like Godspeed, right? But um, for many 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 organizations, that's not actually an option. And so that doesn't mean that you have to sort of sit with what you've got in its 1985 best form. Right. That, that's my point. So you, you're helping evolve your solution to meet the needs. And, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of our listeners are going to ask this question. So I just, I didn't want to just, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask that. We can't just assume that, Hey, you know, everybody, all the technology I have, all this technology debt, it's as simple as just go ahead and let me just go ahead and automate some of this. And it's going to solve my problems. I, I don't know. I think there's disruption everywhere. And so I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, what, what made rocket software uh, pursue this acquisition where you felt the gaps were. So, it, it, you know, it's an honest question. So yeah, I'm, I'm mostly uh, satisfied with the answer, mostly okay. satisfied with mostly. the answer. You know, well, <laughs> I think it's, well, I think it's so simple for, you know, everybody likes to think through it too logically. Well, you know what, it's really hard to replace this or that uh, companies are trying. I mean, you're, there are some are failing 84% of them, I think are failing. I think that's the number 84%. Yeah. Um, and yeah. as a matter of Someone's fact, even try. the CIO, I was listening to, an IDC webinar this week, and what was it? Less the CIO is now engaged in less than fifty percent, less than fifty percent of the decision making process. Now it's at the CIO, the CEOs, and and board members are deciding, you know, how this uh, digital transformation is taking place because it's to me it's a drag behind with uh, business transformation. I think business transformation is dragging it behind. So, anyways, I, I think it's a good question. So, uh, I agree. Our listeners will probably ask. Who's pulling who now? I think it's it's different, and I think it goes back to that um, to the to the statement I made earlier, where you know the technology is being driven a bit by the business now, and and not so much the the IT organization. So that's it's, right, it's that, that changing workforce and everything. Yeah. So one of those transformations is also the the move to the cloud, uh, both in terms of a driver for many of these migrations and platform rewrites, etc. And in terms of an enabler for that end run around the the CIO and the the IT previous decision makers, uh, and so there've been a few interesting pieces of news in that direction as well. Uh, so the Snowflake IPO was obviously big news uh, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, and one of the interesting things to me about Snowflake is that they always refused to have any sort of on-prem offering. They were always cloud only from day one. They always refused to have a cloud offering. And lots of people were coming out of the woodwork to say, oh, you can never sell to the enterprise without an on-prem offering. That's a requirement for the enterprise. Uh, nope, uh, that's not how this works anymore. And they stuck to their guns. And I think they've made a pretty convincing case that uh, these days an on-prem offering is no longer a requirement to be pretty dang successful uh, in the enterprise space. Uh, and more recently, Atlassian has also ended sale and support of their on-prem product. Uh, so they were also going all in on the cloud uh, in the future. So the, I think these are kind of interesting signals uh, in of that change, of that transition uh, in effect. And one of the things then that people talk about is, okay, but which cloud? And this is kind of a, a rerun of conversations that Lilac and I certainly were having uh, 10 plus years ago. <laughs> which cloud do we go to? Are we going to have a hybrid cloud? Is hybrid cloud even something that makes sense? Are we going to do cloud bursting? Are we going to do cloud brokering? That was a fun one. Uh, the idea being that you could spin up resources on demand based on which cloud was cheapest at that precise moment in time. And that obviously never quite works out. But we're kind of getting there now because we're working at this different level. We're not talking about spinning up a VM 
in each cloud. We're talking about getting Snowflake and not really caring where Snowflake runs, getting Atlassian and not caring where Atlassian runs. Or, and disclosure, talking about my employer now, uh, MongoDB now allowing you to spin up database clusters across multiple cloud providers. So you could already spin up a cloud database in AWS, in Azure, in Google Cloud, but now you can have one that spans all three at the same time. And that's probably not for everyone. The data transfer costs alone will add up pretty quickly, but for certain use cases, that gets really interesting. And it kind of changes the terms of that uh, multi-cloud, hybrid cloud conversation compared to the last go-around. What do you think, Lilac? How much does this sound familiar to you? God, it, it super takes me back. I don't know what we were thinking. Um, I, <laughs> I am, I'm actually really glad that it moved up a couple clicks. Honestly, I think um, VM arbitrage is a. It just sounds dismal when we think about it now, right? It does not sound like a way you want to live. Um, I do feel like when you're thinking through moves like Atlassian's move more than yours, uh, your company's Dominic, because yours is obviously a product innovation, a really interesting one. I think from Atlassian's perspective, right, they're, they're gaining as well the fact that they don't have to ship on-site software. The entire agile release process is much, much easier, right? It's, it is, it is a, I, I think, a huge benefit um, to be in that kind of situation that those of us who ship on-site software know that like the release process, the, the upgrade process, the, the historical copies lying around the world become quite a burden over time. And so I can really see why they've made that choice. But I would say that it's a really bold decision from a business perspective, um, probably one that, that has millions of dollars in revenue hanging in the balance. So I, I applaud their, their conviction. Um, I do think it's, it sounds absolutely like the right thing. I would say, though, by the way, as a counterpoint, isn't Amazon shipping on-site clouds now? Isn't that a thing? <laughs> yeah. 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 And Oracle clouds. What's a cloud at customer? Yeah. Yeah. But, but I think these companies, like, not having an on-prem version, I mean, it's it's the abstraction level, right? I think what you mentioned, Lilac, like, like I, now, you know, from IT organizations, we don't need to manage versions anymore. We don't need to manage underlying OS, underlying hardware. I mean, it just gets so much easier for for us, right? As long as you can make it work. And I think that that's on Snowflake is is all because of like, hey, what 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 data is there? How big is it? Like, can this really work in the cloud? I mean, pe- people still want to be close and and have low latency, but I think that's all. Uh, starting starting to change a, a little or to some extent of how people see it because because Snowflake is making like statements that we're only going to be in the cloud. So it only makes sense and it makes it a lot easier. You know, every like the long-term maintenance of these products become much more efficient. You know who does it really uh, strangely, I find, is uh, S- ServiceNow because they allow you to, to upgrade your cloud offering at different points. So I don't know how everybody or how many versions they have running, but they do it a little differently, which I find awkward. And it's just like they're they're building their own offering, right? It's kind of like the the Salesforce model, which Salesforce was the the early uh, you know proponent and, and came came early to the game. I think everybody's adopting that that Salesforce uh, model, and I, I think people don't give Salesforce potentially enough credit about how they've how they've done it, right? Oh boy, here we go with cloud again. Let's not confuse SaaS with cloud. Uh, So, you know, we'll talk Salesforce and all that, but this whole cloud. Now, how about cloud on-prem? This is where I think Lilac will agree with me. This whole notion of cloud, 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 it's this term is is used so much that uh, 
I can deploy something in my own data center and just call it cloud and everybody in management will love me for it and say, wow, Zach has got cloud on-prem. This is great. I mean, I, I don't know. You know <laughs> the I'm phrase just a- cloud on-prem should probably be banned. I am your <laughs> I am your biggest fan right now. Absolutely, she is correct. So I just say that because I think what you described is is SaaS, Mike. And I, I, again, it's software. I agree with you. I think that's that, that. I agree with that notion. But the cloud word, I don't think even belongs in there. I think we we're moving past that in this industry. I think it's for them. They're using it to, as a competitive uh, advantage, right? They go into the customer. They mention the word cloud a few times, and you know then they, they think they're talking about something different when in fact they're not. So I just have to speak up when I hear cloud. Yeah, and I think that's a confusion. People talk about hybrid clouds nowadays. We're not meaning the same thing that we meant 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we we're talking about managing VMs, running in VMware and an AWS and whatever. Um, you know, Rackspace probably at the time. These days, we mean a SaaS product that happens to be hosted in multiple clouds or maybe a PaaS platform that lets you write software that will run across multiple clouds. But the details are hidden behind a screen of possibly Kubernetes. It's a completely, I think the words hybrid cloud have no meaning anymore. <laughs> like it, it, it just doesn't have enough of a defined understanding Frankly, if I put on my marketing hat, which I do like to set aside these days, but if I put it on, I would say leading with the term hybrid cloud provides no additional information to the viewer, right, <laughs> at all. Um, it, because I think so many people are um, interested in calling what they have on site a cloud. And, and frankly, there are situations where I think you, you, a large conglomerate with a centralized IT department is effectively running a cloud on site, right? I'm not going to take that away from them. Um, but there's plenty of other situations where you just have a bunch of servers, thank you very much, and they're virtualized. Um, and then on top of that, right, like you're conflating SaaS and platform as a service and all of this stuff. And at the end, the word we support hybrid cloud has zero meaning to anybody without mm-hmm. like 16 bullets after it. All right, footnotes, footnotes, yeah. asterisk. Yeah, it, isn't it just, it, but isn't it just like you're saying, like if somebody says that, isn't it just like flexibility and options to to a business, to developers? Isn't that all we're really saying? It's operations. The marketing people? Maybe. So, I don't know. Like I sometimes feel like people are like, well, yes, I guess there's deployment options. Or for example, our software, our, our um, DevOps software integrates with Git and Jira and so forth, right? Now if Atlassian is all in the cloud, is my Jira integration a hybrid cloud link? Can I say that? I probably can, <laughs> right? But like, I I probably can. Um, I probably won't, right? <laughs> it just, it, but someone, me, I, someone hypothetically might. But that goes back to where the origin of this whole idea of the cloud was. And you draw a network diagram. And at some point, there was stuff happening that you didn't really care about. You just cared about the outcome. And so you draw this cloudy shape on the whiteboard and the line would continue on the other side and we're kind of getting back to that the the details are obscured by an api call or whatever it is and that's what we mean by cloud effectively i think in my opinion it's it's you know it's operational simplicity through abstraction that's the biggest thing if we draw if we draw it out and i think that's what they're trying to tout on prem but I agree with Lilac. I mean, we're, we're, we're getting at it in all sorts of ways. So is everything cloud? I mean, what does this term cloud mean? I, I just, I think that's, you know, you know, let's go to Mark Anderson. What, you know, again, software will eat the world, but okay, well now you have to digest that. And I think you have to digest that. You have to, right? I mean, abstraction Push is going to enable yeah. that consumption. Uh, that's, that's what I think, but you know, it's, um, 
you know, when people think cloud, they think like, oh, this is going to become simple. I won't need as many, like, it's kind of like the, you know, you won't need as many operations folks, right? So, so IT ops goes, but I think we're getting more and more IT operations folks and IT operations is becoming more and more important because of how we're building this, this complex web of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, this cloud, that cloud, and, and everything needs to talk to each other. And how are we going to make this happen? Like the integration is just getting uh, a, li- a little crazy. And I think that's why, you know, we, we talk about, we just spoke about SaaS, but I think that's what SaaS makes easy. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, here, here, here it is. Like it, it's, it's wrapped up, it has a bow on it and, and it'll, it'll just work anywhere, you know? And, um, <laughs> you know, and, and if you look at, let's look at the three major cloud players, I think some are much more difficult to break into and set up and train your people on than others like Microsoft, where it's like, you know, the, the kings of simplicity um, have just made it so easy to, to, yeah, to, they make it. They make that their, their drug, business. Yeah. yeah, they make that their yeah. business. It's a consumption model. But it's like if I need to pull data from a backend system these days, I don't go to a mainframe programmer. I don't go to a DBA who's going to write a query. And so, in that sense, my interaction with the IT department is less than it might have been uh, some time ago. But what I do is I go to someone whose title is business analyst and they don't think of themselves as a programmer. They're not perceived as a programmer, but what they do is they run these very complex queries inside of a platform like Salesforce, or they use something like Tableau to pull the data from it. They do all of these things. And that is effectively the same function from my perspective as an end user of it. Uh, The details are kind of irrelevant to my point of view. So it might not be formally IT in terms of org chart, but I'm still getting the same service. So I don't care. It's, it's a cloud. <laughs> when I used to do um, onboarding classes at my last job, I, I always wanted everybody to understand the technology, even if you weren't a product marketer or product manager or whatever. And, um, and I started with a cloud is just a computer that you can't actually kick because it's not near you. Right. <laughs> That's like it. <laughs> Like, that's pretty much all at this point that it means. Um, but I do feel like, uh, to your point, Dominic, uh, yes, you go to a business analyst who is going to go do all kinds of machinations on Salesforce. Um, I'm not sure that, I'm not convinced as somebody who lives in Salesforce now all the time, which is a horrifying development in my life. Um, I'm not convinced things got any easier and that maybe the DB2 would have gotten to it faster. (laughs) You're probably right. I remember when it was your cat's paw that you used to interact with Salesforce. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Let's go back to this whole cloud. I I think Microsoft is more SaaS. We talk about Microsoft, people that leverage it, leverage really SaaS. They, They love OneDrive. They love Office. I mean, there's some Azure out there. I, and I say this because I'm going to bring up Amazon, who I think is more of a DevOps cloud. And really, is that solving problems? Because everything I've heard Lilac just mentioned, well, it, it solves problems. I mean, you know, Lilac, I did challenge it, but I, I think it solves problems. And so, you know, we, we talk about cloud and simplicity, but when I think of, of and I don't mean to pick on AWS, but when I think of AWS, I don't think of simplicity. I think of 5,000 different product code names. I think of a black box they put on site that you have no visibility uh, into that connects back to their cloud. That's their cloud on-prem, which makes me think of a, you know, a, a garden wall, uh, AKA Oracle, to be quite honest. And so I, I think through all this and I'm like, is that really easy? Is that making it easy? So we think of operational simplicity. Well, if I can easily operationalize something that's complex that I didn't need to begin with, then do I need the whole solution? Should we maybe stick a pin in the calendar and revisit that one after reInvent, which is looming mm-hmm. on the horizon? 
and yes, again, ten week, ten week long reinvent. Exactly. Is that oh ten week long? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, these remote events, I hate them so much, and I even hate them slightly more than going all the way to Vegas. Wow. <laughs> that's that's quite a statement there yeah i have to tell you that I, I continue to think fondly of a trip to vegas and that tells you how far into the pandemic we are that i'm thinking to myself oh gosh wouldn't it be nice to visit the venetian around february we'll be thinking fondly of reno <laughs> check oh, your God. temperature i like wait a minute check your temperature are you sick are you feeling okay i might be i might be unwell i may have covid um <laughs> Dominic and I once were stuck in Reno for a sales kickoff, and that was, um, it made Vegas seem like freaking Shangri La, right? Like Reno is dark. Although I did have a jacuzzi right beside my bed, which led to more questions. <laughs> uh, you, you can come to South Carolina for that. That's, uh, you don't need to go all the way there. So <laughs> leave it at that, yeah. Okay. Anyways, let's bring this to a close, fascinating as it's been, but we don't want to go too long. Um, so, Lilac, as you know by now, we have recommendations at the end, although I think uh, at least some of us haven't done their homework. But I had one that I wanted to share, and it turned out that we kind of referred to it uh, in the conversation as well. So I'm reading The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. If the name sounds vaguely familiar, he's the guy who wrote the Reds, Blue, Green, Mars trilogy or Red, Green, Blue, Mars trilogy back in the day. Um, he's written a bunch of other stuff. This is a little different from his usual thing. It's more like a white paper with occasional bits of narrative sellotapes to it. Uh, but it's uh, it's pretty interesting. It's dense, but it's interesting. And one of the things that he refers to, which we kind of touched on obliquely, is discounting the future. Uh, so making decisions today based on an estimation of the value of something in the future. Uh, and how the rate of discounting of that is a moral choice. It's uh, it's deep stuff. Um, and Zach, you had the you had the recommendation as well. I do, I do. I'll tell you. Um, I've been listening to well, listening. I should say, uh, joining a great webinar series from IDC. It is IDC Futurescape, and the link will be in the notes. But it's idc.com forward slash events forward slash Futurescape. They're terrific, uh, one or two a week, everything from digital transformation, uh, you know, to RPA to everything else you can think of. So it is, uh, it's great. It's very informative and I think everybody would enjoy that. So if you have some time during the week to attend some of these sessions, I highly recommend it. Yeah, and the good thing about 2020 remote events is that you can time shift them, you get the recording and you can watch it anytime. So there is that. Uh, what I've been doing, and this may be too much information, but I have a brewing machine set up in my office uh, and I use the time of the webinar, which is 30, 40 minutes once you allow for the questions at the end uh, to get a workout in. So get a workout for brain and body. Mike, Lilac, did either of you have a recommendation for the listeners this week? Man, if I if I could say one thing, um, been playing around a bit for those of you who are Office 365 or Microsoft 365 users, Power Automate, which was uh, renamed from Flow. Um, you know, I'm starting to see some business people do some pretty interesting things with it, and um, I, I would encourage everybody to go uh, to go dabble in it because it, um, it it does unlock some power for the regular users. So very interesting. I've heard about that. I've been curious about it. We're a Google shop, so I haven't had the opportunity, but interesting stuff. Okay, cool. Google's Google, I think, is um, is starting to frustrate some people compared to what uh, Microsoft yes. is doing. But yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> let let don't get me started on Google Drive again. So yeah, <laughs> there you go. 
I don't have any recommendation except don't tell your child about Harry Potter book three, Prisoner of Azkaban, or you'll be reading it over and over and over and over. (laughs) (laughs) Have you read Harry Potter world in Orlando? No, I haven't. My son is only seven. So um, we'll we'll get there, I'm sure. Um, But right now we've got books one through four, and I'm stopping at that point because book five is just so full of teenage angst. It is a bit. My eldest has just been watching the the film of that because he refuses to read that. <laughs> the teenage angst is real. It's very real. It's too much. So anyway, that's my that is all I've been reading or doing lately. Good stuff. Well, thanks again, Lilac, for joining us. It is always great to have a catch up with you and talk about cloud and Las Vegas and other topics. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming, Lilac. Thank you, Lilac. For the listeners. Thank you. And for the listeners, we'll catch you all next week. In the meantime, you can find us online. You can find us on Twitter at Roll4 Number Four Enterprise, uh, or on our LinkedIn page, Roll for Enterprise, or just anytime at rollforenterprise.com. Thanks all and goodbye. Um.